Bring my soul out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. When you have dealt bountifully with me, then shall the righteous gather around me. O Father, through the death of your Son, you have conquered sin, so they, they are now forgiven. And you have crushed the skull of the serpent. Through his resurrection, death has been swallowed up in victory. And now you give us joy in Christ Jesus. And now we join with Christ Jesus in taunting the fallen foe. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? For you, O God, have given us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have peace. In him we find salvation. In him all your promises are fulfilled, O Father. And so today we praise you and adore you, O God our Father, with your Son, and the Holy Spirit. O God, our Savior, we give you thanks and we rest in your promises. Amen. Let us pray. O Father, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is risen. He is risen indeed. May the good news of His resurrection be proclaimed here and throughout the world this day. We pray this in His name. Amen. God has given us four Gospels in His Word, and all four Gospels end basically the same way with the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had been delivered to death. On the third day, He is delivered from death. Rome can kill, but God can resurrect. That's how all the Gospels end. Uh, it's interesting that uh, a lot of Old Testament books end with death. Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But not so the Gospels. They record the death of Jesus, and then they also record His resurrection. They end not with a dead Jesus, but with Jesus being raised up. See, God has done something different. God has done something new. God has brought life in the midst of death. Life that triumphs over death. The Gospels end with a dead Jesus who has now been resurrected. Easter is God's great victory. The Gospels record Jesus fulfilling God's promises to vanquish Satan, to swallow up death in victory. All four Gospels end that way, but even among the four Gospels, there's something unique about Mark. Mark's Gospel actually comes to us in two versions. Uh, the oldest manuscripts of Mark's gospel that we have end at verse 8, where I ended reading this morning. But then there are other later manuscripts, and indeed more of them, that include verses 9 through 20. And if you look in your Bible carefully, you will probably see a marginal note of some sort uh, that tells you this, that, that tells you that there are two versions of Mark's gospel, a short ending and a longer ending. Uh, scholars will tell you that the manuscript evidence favors the short ending as original, that Mark originally ended his gospel at verse 8. But the church's tradition, and I'd also say literary evidence, favor the inclusion of the long ending, uh, which runs all the way out to verse 20. There's no doubt that many in the early church were clearly only familiar with a version of Mark that ended at verse 8. 
Uh, Many Christians encountered Mark's gospel in the early church and knew Mark's gospel in the early church as ending at verse 8. But there's also no question that the consensus of the church over the centuries has been that verses 9 through 20 are inspired and ought to be considered part of the canonical text of Scripture. They should be in the Bible as well. They fit the rest of Mark's gospel and actually pick up on themes from the early chapters, bringing them to a conclusion. So what are we to do with this? We have two versions of Mark's gospel that have come down to us. Uh, We cannot be totally sure exactly how this happened, uh, but we do know that Mark's gospel has existed in the history of the church in these two versions. In God's providence, we have two versions of Mark's gospel. I think it is most likely that Mark originally ended his gospel at verse 8, that that was the original ending of the gospel, and it even circulated that way for a few years. And then, uh, for various reasons... Uh, he added verses 9 through 20 as a kind of epilogue, perhaps a little bit later. Uh, that would explain why the oldest manuscripts stop at verse 8, and the majority of manuscripts have verses 9 through 20. But because Mark's gospel comes down to us in these two forms, uh, I think it is best to preach it both ways. We have Mark's first edition, which ended at verse 8, And uh, that's what I'm going to preach this morning, and then we'll come back next time, and I will preach Mark's second edition, the long ending, and we'll look at verses 9 through 20. But because the church has known Mark's gospel uh, in both of these forms, I think that makes sense. Because the church has known Mark's gospel in both of these versions, and because it's actually possible that Mark uh, actually gave us two versions of his gospel, uh, I think that's the best way to handle it. And so this morning we will treat Mark's gospel as ending at verse 8. So looking at Mark 16, 1 to 8, as Mark's original ending for his gospel, what do we need to see? Well, there are two things I want us to see this morning. First, I want us to see the ending, and then I want us to see the ending as a beginning. So the ending and the ending as a beginning. First, let's look at this as the ending. If Mark originally ended his gospel at verse 8, it's a very odd ending, isn't it? This may be why uh, Mark eventually felt the need to write a further epilogue, uh, because uh, certainly some people would have found this a very dissatisfying conclusion to the gospel. This is an odd way to end a gospel. It's an ending that doesn't seem to be an ending at all. Just look again at verses 7 and 8. This young man clothed in white, tells the women who have come to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, go tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So the women went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, that's how it ends. What do you think? That doesn't seem to be a very satisfying conclusion to the story. This story that has ended with Jesus' death and now his resurrection. And now the women are told to go tell. And yet it ends with them trembling in fear and amazement and not saying anything to anyone. That seems very abrupt. It seems unfinished. 
Uh, This man clothed in white at the empty tomb, who's obviously an angel appearing to them in the form of a young man, has told them the good news that Christ is not here, Christ is risen. And he's told them to go and tell this good news to others. But how does the story end? It ends with the women silent and fearful. They don't go joyfully announcing this news. They say nothing to anyone because they are afraid. Clearly, this is an unfinished story. But, and I think this is what gives us, gives plausibility to the fact that Mark could have originally ended his gospel this way. Telling unfinished stories is something that happens again and again in Scripture. There's something about an unfinished story that God seems to like. Telling stories that don't have a final resolution. Telling stories that are open-ended. God seems to like this. This is a very common literary technique in Scripture to tell open-ended stories. And I think it serves a very good purpose. There are a lot of unfinished stories in Scripture. The book of Jonah is a very good example of this. We're all familiar with the book of Jonah, I would guess. Jonah uh, leaves us hanging in the same way that Mark's short ending leaves us hanging. Think about the book of Jonah. Jonah is commanded by God as a prophet to go and preach to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites because they're evil and because they are his enemy and the enemy of Israel. And so he runs in the opposite direction. He runs away from God and from his calling, but he finds that doesn't work. He gets on a ship headed the opposite direction. A storm comes. He's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by the fish. The fish spits him out on dry ground, and he realizes it's pointless and foolish to run. And so he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches a very simple sermon that Nineveh is going to be judged But the Ninevites hear this message and they heed this warning and the Ninevites repent from the king, the greatest in the city, all the way down to the lowest in the city. And so what what Jonah feared most actually happens. He realizes God is going to show mercy to this great city of Nineveh and it's going to be spared. And how does the book of Jonah end? Jonah is outside of the city. Of course, he's hoping that fire will fall from heaven to destroy it like Sodom, but that's not going to happen. He's outside the city looking at the city and God provides a plant to shade Jonah from the sun, but then the plant withers and Jonah's angry about it and God asks Jonah a question. You pity the plant you did not create. Should I not pity the great city of Nineveh? Jonah is a story that doesn't really end. It ends with a question. A story that ends with a question is obviously open-ended. It hasn't really ended at all. The thing is, we don't know how Jonah answered God's question. We don't know if Jonah came to agree with God and repented of his sin and his self-righteousness or if he continued to be stubborn and hard-hearted. We just don't know. It's an open-ended story. And so if you read a story like that, what does it do to you as the reader? Well, it forces that unanswered question on you. You as the reader find that you find yourself forced to answer the question. The reader has to answer God's question and say, no, God, I don't like it when you show mercy to my enemies or to say, yes, God, I will delight in your mercy. You are right to show mercy to your creatures, even if I don't like it or I don't like them. But the book of Jonah is a story in search of an ending. It's a, it's a, it ends with a question posed to the nation of Israel and posed to the reader of the story. Ending a story with an unanswered question makes a really profound statement. 
It points the story back at the reader and says, what will you do? How will you answer this question? Will you learn the lesson God was seeking to teach Jonah? We don't know if Jonah learned his lesson, but will you? That's how it works. Will you learn that God can show mercy to whom he wills? Or will you resent God's mercy when he is merciful to your enemies? Will you learn the lesson or not? The question comes back at the reader. Or take another example of this. Jesus uh, had a knack for telling unfinished stories, like the parable of the prodigal son. And this one's actually kind of similar to Jonah in some ways. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son demands his father give him his inheritance. Then he goes off and he wastes his father's money on wicked living. And when finally the money runs out, uh, he decides he'll go back home and see if his father will take him in as a slave. But his father has been out looking for his son, scanning the horizon for any sight of his son. And then the father welcomes him home with open arms and throws him a big party. But that's not how the story ends. Because, see, there's another brother. We find there is an older brother who has never left home who will not join the party. And so the father comes out from the party and he pleads with his older son to enter into the celebration. And that's how the story ends. What happened? We don't know. We're not told. It's open-ended. We don't know if the older son responded to the father's pleas. We don't know if he dropped his self-righteous protests and joined in the party or not. We're simply not told. And so again, what does the story do? It forces itself on the reader. The reader realizes if this story is going to have a happy ending, I've got to repent of my self-righteousness and I've got to learn to welcome sinners to the feast. The story is unfinished, which puts the burden on the reader to write an ending with the way he responds to the story. Or take the book of Acts. Acts could be considered an example of an unfinished story as well. Uh, The whole second half of Acts really traces Paul's missionary journeys and imprisonment. Paul seeks to proclaim the gospel and Paul gets persecuted. And one thing we know that we see very clearly is that Paul has this overriding desire to preach the gospel to Caesar, to call on Caesar to bow the knee to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is what the whole book of Acts is really funneled towards, is Paul testifying before Caesar. But how does the book of Acts end? It ends with Paul in Rome, so he's gotten that close to Caesar. But he's under house arrest, and he is awaiting trial before Caesar. But Luke then simply ends the story and leaves us hanging. He ends in Acts 28 without giving us a resolution to what was really going to be the the, the highlight of it all, Paul getting to preach to Caesar. And so we don't know how it turned out for Paul. We don't know. Did he get martyred? Did he get to preach to Caesar? Did he get set free and get to go on another missionary journey? Acts is incomplete and it's unfinished. Uh, Some years ago, there was a um, church planting network that uh, was formed and called itself the Acts 29 Network picking up on just this theme, saying, hey, look, Acts 28, that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the story. There's got to be more to come. It's an unfinished story. So we've got to pick up where the book of Acts leaves off. That's the calling of the church, to write the rest of the story by carrying the mission forward. We don't know if Paul got to stand before Caesar or not, but we know we're called to go stand before Caesar 
the Caesars of our day, to write the ending that Acts is missing, in a sense. So this is a pattern found all throughout Scripture. Mark 16, 1-8 fits this pattern. Some have looked at this and said, oh, well, if it ends at verse 8, then Mark must have just been a a clumsy writer. He doesn't seem to have been very skilled as a writer. I don't think that's the case at all. I think Mark is actually being very brilliant and profound with what he does here. So think about this. If the story ends with the women silent and afraid when they should be speaking and joyful, what does that do to the reader of Mark's gospel? The women are commanded to go and tell others. But after we read verse 8, we don't know if they went and told others or not. And so what do we do as readers? What happens to us as readers? We're drawn into the story. We say to ourselves, somebody has got to get this good news out. If the women won't do it, I will. We realize it's up to us to finish the story. We've got to tell others the good news. We've got to write, as it were, Mark 17. Mark chapter 17 with our own lives, with our own witness. That's what Mark wanted his first readers to do. Mark's unfinished story draws us in and makes us participants in the story. We realize we have to get involved in it. We have to live our lives in such a way that we produce a fit ending to Mark's gospel. We live in such a way that we write the ending. See, an unfinished story demands a response. It demands action on the part of the reader. And that's why you have this again and again in Scripture. Because these unfinished stories, these stories are not given just to inform us. They're given to transform us, to call us to action. And so when you come to verse 8, the question then is not, did the women eventually go tell others? The question is, will you? Will you go share this good news? Will you tremble in fear and not say anything to anybody? Or will you joyfully step out following the risen Christ to announce this good news? The news of Easter, of Jesus' resurrection must be told. This is a story that cannot stay a secret. If Mark's gospel is open-ended and inconclusive, then that tells you the mission of the church is to bring closure and a fitting conclusion to this story. The open-endedness of the story gives rise to the church's mission. The mission of the church is to write a happy ending to Mark's gospel. And in that way, we become part of the story ourselves as we pick up where Mark originally left off. That's our calling. It's really, really interesting. It's really ironic, actually, uh, that Mark would originally end his gospel in this way. And it's really ironic because of the way Mark has told the story of the gospel to this point. Uh, One thing that you see if you trace this out in Mark's gospel, how Mark's gospel has progressed to this point, um, one of the things that's very interesting that you see is that Jesus wants to keep his Messiahship a secret until the right moment. And so very often in Mark's gospel, you will see this. Jesus will perform some miracle. And then he will say to the person that he has performed the miracle for, he will say, now do not tell anyone. Don't tell anyone about this. 
And this is so prominent in Mark's gospel. It's such a, a clear and obvious feature of Mark's gospel that Mark's gospel has become known as the gospel of the messianic secret. Because Mark makes a big deal out of this, how Jesus wanted to keep his messiahship secret. Jesus wants those he does miracles for to keep it quiet because it's not yet time to openly reveal his identity. And I think we can say this is because Jesus knew that if people identified him as Messiah before the cross, they would misunderstand Messiahship. Jesus doesn't want Messiahship separated from the cross. He wants to align them and bring them together. And so, for example, in Mark chapter 8, right after Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus warns the disciples to not tell anyone. He warns them, yeah, you've, you've figured out that I'm the Christ. Now don't tell anybody. It seems so counterintuitive, but that's what Jesus says. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus cleanses a leper, and then he commands the leper to not tell anyone. He commands him to not tell anyone how he got cleansed. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus cures a deaf and a mute man and orders him not to tell others. This man has never been able to hear or speak. He's got his hearing and his voice back. And what does Jesus say? Don't use your restored voice to go tell anyone who I am or what I've done for you. Like he'd really be able to keep that a secret. But that's what Jesus says. I mean, that's really the funny thing in Mark's gospel is that Jesus keeps telling these people, don't tell anybody who I am. Keep it quiet. Keep it on the down low. And the funny thing is, the secret just can't be kept. The leper in Mark chapter 1 goes out and tells so many people that Jesus has to live like a leper and go hide out in the wilderness. The deaf mute man who just got his, his voice back proclaims that he can't remain silent either. But now... In Mark 16, the messianic secret is over. Now the cat's supposed to be let out of the bag. Now it's time to tell. Now it's time for Jesus' messiahship to be openly proclaimed, to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is Messiah. And the women here are commanded to go and tell. They're commanded to proclaim Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' messiahship to others. And what happens? They fall silent. They've been made mute. They're tongue-tied. It's time for the secret to be revealed, and they keep it a secret. Those who were supposed to keep it a secret earlier could not. Now it's supposed to be openly proclaimed, and they keep it a secret. And so again, what happens? What does this irony do? This irony presses itself on us as readers of the original version of Mark's Gospel the readers of Mark's gospel, the church community realizes, okay, it's up to us. Now the secret is supposed to get out. It's up to us to announce the secret of Jesus' messiahship and Jesus' resurrection. We've got to tell the world this truth. Now here's the thing. If we're going to tell the rest of Mark's gospel, if we're going to pick up where Mark left off in verse 8 and continue the story, if we're the ones who are to write the finish of the story with our own lives, how should it go? We want to tell a story with our lives, obviously, that is consistent with the story Mark's already telling. What should it look like? Well, Mark has actually given us clues here. See, if we're going to write the ending to Mark's gospel with our lives, we want it to fit everything that has gone before. We want to write a fitting ending. 
And so we need to see Mark has left us a trail of clues so we will know how to end it. So we will know how this story is to go. As the women learn from the messenger at the tomb that Jesus has given death the slip, as it were, that he has overcome death, that he has busted out of the grave, that he is alive again, these women learn that the story they thought was over is really just beginning. The women thought the story of Jesus ended with his death and burial at the end of Mark chapter 15. Now they learn actually his story and their story with him was really just getting underway. The story is just beginning. So if this story is going to continue on, how should it go? Mark has given us clues. What are some of the clues that Mark has given us about the way that this story should go, the the shape and direction this story should take? If after Mark got done writing chapter 16, verse 8, He handed over his parchment to you and he said, here, you write the rest of it. What would you do? Where would you take the story? How would you finish it? How would you fill out that parchment with your life, so to speak? Well, again, Mark has given us clues. Let's look at a few of them here. First clue is we have a young man clothed in white at the tomb. This is obviously an angel who is appearing to them as a young man. Uh, He's a messenger of God, and he's the one who gives the women the instructions. He's the one who says to them, Jesus is risen. You're seeking Jesus in the wrong place. He's not here in the tomb anymore. He is alive. What is interesting about this young man clothed in white that we meet is just a couple chapters earlier, back in Mark chapter 14, there was a young man in white or in linen, we're told, who was following Jesus, somewhat at a distance, but following on uh, that night, following Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he continues to follow Jesus right up until Jesus got arrested. And of course, he's going to be taken away to be crucified. But right up to that moment when Jesus was arrested, this young man in white, in linen, was following Jesus. As soon as they came for Jesus to take him away, this young man had a failure of nerve. And so he fled the scene, and in doing so, he lost his garment. He ran off naked, Mark 14 tells us. It's just an odd little episode in Mark's gospel kind of thrown in there. Here you have this young man who was robed in white linen who fled the garden naked and ashamed, which kind of reminds us of Adam all the way back in Genesis 3 being driven out of the garden. He was not fully naked when he was driven out, but he had been naked before and realized his shame, and he sent away from the garden. This young man in Mark 14, this unnamed disciple following from a distance who flees Jesus, really represents the way all the disciples will respond as soon as it gets hard to follow Jesus, as soon as it might entail any kind of suffering. So you got a young man who flees the garden naked in chapter 14. Now we meet another young man, this time clothed and in glory, who's not afraid, but who is joyful, who's not running away, but who is sitting. And the words like young man and clothed in Mark 14, those same terms are used in Mark 16, so it's obvious there's some kind of match. Mark obviously wants us to connect them. Now, why did the young man flee in Mark 14? He fled because he was scared. 
Uh, he stopped following Jesus as soon as it got tough. As soon as it meant he might have to suffer, he fled. That man, that young man there in Mark 14, was put to shame. His nakedness was a sign of his shame. And he should have been ashamed because that night exposed him as a coward. Even as it would expose all the disciples as cowards. Why is this angelic young man in Mark 16 clothed in white saying to the women, do not be afraid? Well, certainly it's a picture of glory. Uh, Because when we see the risen Christ, say, in the book of Revelation in chapters 1 and 19, he is robed in white in the same way as this man is here. So he points to the glory of the risen Christ. He's a representative of the risen Christ. But he's also a picture of the disciples. He's also a picture of what the disciples will become. He is a picture of courage. A picture of the courage that the followers of the risen Christ will come to show. In contrast to what happened before the resurrection, when they all fled in fear, now this man is a picture of the courage they will show as followers of the risen Christ. Because yes, Jesus wears white when we see him in the book of Revelation. But you know who else wears white in the book of Revelation? The followers of Jesus. Those who follow Jesus, especially those who suffer for Jesus. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, the martyrs are given white robes. The martyrs will be robed in white. Those who are willing to follow Jesus, even though it means suffering. So one clue Mark has given to us about the way the story will go from here on out is that it will involve suffering for God's people. But it will be suffering unto glory. It will be suffering, but God's people will be given courage to endure it. Those who are too scared to follow Jesus will get stripped naked. But those who have the courage of martyrs will enter into glory. This man shows us that. How does the story go? The story goes in such a way that we display courage and a willingness to suffer as followers of Jesus. You know where boats are safest? Boats are safest in the harbor. That's where boats are the safest. Nothing can happen to the boat in the harbor. But would anybody say that the boat is made for the harbor? No, boats are not made for the harbor. Boats are made to sail out across the ocean. They're made to get out of the harbor and go cross the ocean. And so it is with humans. We, and I would say especially Christians. We were not made for safety. We were not made for the harbor. We were made for mission, even though it's difficult and scary at times. This is what we're called to, to courageous mission and sacrificial suffering for the sake of Jesus. You can see, this is going to be a pretty exciting story, however it goes. Before Christ's death and resurrection, all of his followers lacked courage. Now they will be emboldened. Now they will be courageous and willing to suffer for him. And indeed, they will be clothed in white robes. When the next chapter is written, that's how it's going to go. Jesus' followers displaying boldness. The boldness that comes with following the risen Christ who has conquered death. But we can say more about this white figure at the tomb. Certainly he represents what those who see the risen Christ will become. How they will become courageous 
and willing to suffer, but they also show us what we will become in other ways as well. The white garment may mean that Jesus' people will be priests in him, in union with him, because priests were robed in white linen. Uh, Further, the young man was seated on the right side of the tomb. Well, all throughout Scripture, the the right side or the right hand is the place of privilege. It is the place of rule. Again, this is showing us the followers of Jesus will be kings seated in union with Christ at God's right hand. See, this man is a symbol, not just pointing to Jesus, but also pointing to the disciples, what they will become. I think it's significant even that we're told this angel appeared in the form of a young man. Uh, Mark opened his gospel with a quote from Isaiah 40. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. And of course that pointed to John the Baptist. We find that in the opening verses of Mark's gospel. But you know how Isaiah 40 ends? How that chapter that Mark has quoted as sort of the program for his whole gospel. You know how Isaiah 40 ends? It says, Youths shall grow faint and be weary, even the young men shall utterly fall. That happened in Mark 14. The young man utterly failed. He fell. He fell away. He fled. Uh, His strength left him. But then Isaiah 40 continues, those who wait on the Lord will have their strength renewed. Well, there in Mark 14, you had a young man who lost his strength. Here, you have a young man shining in strength. The appearance of a young man with renewed strength. And what gives him his strength? Obviously, it is the risen Christ who has renewed him in his strength. This young man is a picture of what God is making us to be through the risen Christ. This young man in chapter 16 is a picture of the young man in chapter 14 now restored and transformed. This is how the story is going to go. Those who lost their strength will regain it. Those who are weak will be made strong. Those who grew weary will find themselves renewed in strength. And so this man in white at the scene of the tomb is really a picture for us of how the story will go. In union with the risen Christ, our nakedness and shame will be covered. We will learn to boldly suffer unto glory and we will be priests and kings in union with Christ Jesus and we will find that our weariness is overcome, that we are refreshed and strengthened in Christ. That's what the risen Christ will do for us as his disciples. That's a big clue about the way the story will go. Here's another clue. The young man in white tells the women to go and tell the disciples and Peter to go and meet Jesus. That's verse 7. Why is Peter singled out? I think this is one of the biggest clues of all in terms of the way the story will go. It's an indicator of the shape the story will take. Why is Peter singled out, distinguished from the rest of the disciples? All of the disciples were failures on the night Jesus was arrested and tried. But other than Judas, who clearly is not part of the story anymore, Peter was the biggest failure of them all. He boasted about what he would do for Jesus, but when the chips were down, he denied Jesus three times. He bragged about how strong he would be, and then even in front of a little servant girl, he melted and fell apart. He came undone. He came unglued. He came unhinged. He was so proud, and then he got utterly humiliated when he faltered. Peter was the biggest failure of them all, the biggest sinner 
All this hype. And then he totally blew it. But if Peter is going to be brought back into the story, what does that tell you about the kind of story this is? This is a story for sinners. This is a story where sinners find grace. This is a story where failures are restored. Where those who deny Jesus can be brought back. Peter is singled out here for inclusion and for invitation because earlier Peter's colossal failure had been singled out. He was the worst of them all. How's this story going to go? It's going to be a story of grace for sinners. A story of grace for failures. The story is a story of Jesus' grace extended to those who have denied Him. It's a story of God's grace being extended to sinners, even the worst of sinners. How's the story going to go? It will be a story of forgiveness, of restoration, of reconciliation. A story that includes those who have fallen away, being brought back into the circle of fellowship. A story that includes the broken being healed and the weak being made strong and the humbled being exalted. This is the kind of story that will complete Mark's Gospel. And further, here's another clue. We learn how this story is going to spread, how this story will travel. How will this message reach Peter and the others? The women are told that if this message is going to be spread, they're going to have to proclaim it. The gospel will move at the speed of friendship. It will move at the speed of our speech as we share it with others. The, the young man is telling them, look, for the secret to get out, you've got to announce it. God is not going to reach down from heaven and zap people with the gospel. That's not how it's going to work. The gospel's not going to spread because of something God does vertically from heaven to earth. It's going to spread because of what God does horizontally through one another as we speak and minister to one another. How's this story going to go? This story is going to be carried forward by those who identify as evangelists and missionaries. Those who are willing to speak the truth of this story themselves. For the story to go forward, for it to go anywhere, we have to open our mouths and proclaim the good news. The Lord has to open our lips so we can announce Christ's resurrection. That's what we're called to. Here's another clue. They're told to meet Jesus in Galilee. Why Galilee? Uh, The place was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, They're going to meet Jesus there, surely in part because this is where Jesus began his public ministry. So the story's going to come full circle. We're back to the original launching pad, uh, as it were. But what you see here, too, again, this, this is reinforcing a point already made, but this is another clue. This is going to be a missionary story. In fact, it's a story of global mission. This is another huge clue we're given here. We should remember that Galilee was the place where the boundary between Jews and Gentiles really broke down. That's why it was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a place where Jews and Gentiles mixed. So it's a very controversial place for the Jews. But if the disciples are being sent to Galilee, it means the story will include not just Israel, but the nations. This is not just Israel's story. This is the world's story. This is a story that's going to integrate all different kinds of people, different ethnicities, different languages, different people groups. This is a story that can only be fulfilled by a global mission, 
by an international mission. It means this story will flow into and fulfill the story that God started telling with Abraham. Come to think of it, the story God started to tell with Abraham has not yet been finished. What did God promise to do for Abraham? He promised that through Abraham, He would bless all the families and all the nations of the world. Well, that story God started with Abraham now is going to be concluded through the mission of the church to all the nations. That that, that next chapter in Abraham's story, the fulfillment chapter, is now going to be written. And, of course, much of the rest of the New Testament is taken up with this particular piece of the story, dealing with the challenges that the church faces going from monocultural to multicultural. As the church draws in people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and ethnicity, as they all come together as one in Christ, as all the different varieties and colors and languages of the human race are joined together in Him, yeah, that created all kinds of challenges. And much of the New Testament is written to deal with precisely those kinds of challenges. But here in Mark's Gospel, he's giving us a clue about the way the story is to go. It's a global story. Here's another clue. The young man says Jesus will go before them. He's going to pave the way to Galilee. He will go ahead of them to Galilee. How does this story go? Where does this story go? It goes wherever Jesus leads us. He is the captain of the Lord's army who leads us into battle, who blazes a trail for us, who goes out ahead of us. He's out in front fighting for us on our behalf. Wherever we show up with the Gospel, Jesus is already there. And so we're called to take on foes that Jesus has already decisively conquered in His cross and resurrection. And so as we follow Him, as we follow His lead, all we are really doing is implementing the victory. He's already won over sin, Satan, and death. He is the leader of the Lord's army. We are the troops who follow Him into battle. And this is where we see the story is really a story of victory. In fact, I can give you a you know, spoiler alert here. I'll tell you how the story ends. I'll tell you how, how, you know, how, how this story is going to finally end when it does end, when the ending of all endings comes. The good guys are going to win. Jesus and his people will be victorious. When the final ending arrives we will see Jesus wins the victory. The ending of the story is already secure because the victory has already been won. He's already won the great victory. And so this ending really is a new beginning. The ending of Mark's Gospel contains a new beginning. It gives birth to a new beginning. When you come to the end of Mark's Gospel, you realize that the first 15 chapters were really just the cover and the title page. And now, at last, the great story really begins. A story which will go on forever and ever and in which each chapter will be better than the one before it. Mark's ending is a beginning. And Mark shows us this in so many ways, so many clues here. Verse 1, he says, when the Sabbath was passed. When the Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath was the end of the week. When the old week was passed. See, when the women come to the tomb, the old week is over. The new week is dawning. Jesus has rested on the Sabbath. 
Now he is getting ready to go to work as the new Adam, taking dominion over the creation with his bride, the church represented by these women, helping him. That project God originally set in motion in Genesis 1 and 2 will be fulfilled by the new Adam and his bride, the church. Verse 2, we're told it was very early in the morning on the first day of the week. The sun had just risen. Mark is hammering on this newness. He's again showing us this is one of the clues. This story is a new beginning. This ending is a new beginning. The new week beginning when the women showed up at the tomb is really a picture of a new age in history beginning with Jesus' resurrection. The old week giving way to a new week. The old creation giving way to a new creation. In Jesus, a new creation has dawned. In the resurrection, Jesus opens the door to a new creation. And he holds that door open for us to enter into it as well, to join him in this new creation. The women have come to the garden in the cool of the day. And they find a new Adam has arisen from the dust of the grave and is getting to work subduing the earth to his lordship. And they are to become his helpers. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? The bodily resurrection of Jesus means that the whole creation is being restored and redeemed. God is putting the creation to rights. God's not going to scrap this world and replace it. God is redeeming this world. And God is going to recover all that sin and death have damaged. The resurrection means that God cares about all of life. He cares about redeeming and restoring family and politics and economics and art and education and music and feasting and every other aspect of culture you can name. Jesus died and rose from the dead to restore creation and to restore culture. The resurrection means He will do something about all that is wrong in the world. He will do something about disease and oppression and injustice. The resurrection means our future is physical. However the story goes, it includes the physical. The resurrection means God cares about the body. Your body is not just a dispensable container for your soul. No, matter matters to God and it always will. God cares about bodily life. God cares about earthly existence. God cares about this creation. The world never drops out of the story. The physical creation is always included in the story. God cares about the creation. And you know what else God cares about? You. God cares about you. He cares about your life. He cares about your problems. The resurrection means God loves you. And God has an incredibly wonderful plan for you. The resurrection means that God will fix all that is broken in your life. The resurrection means all the sad things in your life will come untrue. The resurrection means your story is going to be a never-ending story of joy and glory. That's really the whole point of Easter. That's where the story is taking us. The whole point of Easter is that God is going to take care of all your heartbreak. He's going to turn all your sadness to joy. All your wounds will be healed. The resurrection gives you hope, an unshakable hope for the future. 
But the resurrection also gives you power right now to handle all your pain and failure and struggle. The resurrection means God will give you the victory. Yes, the fact that Jesus rose on the first day means you will be resurrected on the last day. But it also means you can experience resurrection on this day. Right now. You've been raised together with Christ, made alive in Him. This is the story you're living in right now. It's the story you're living in this very moment. It's a resurrection story. The resurrection story means God hasn't given up on His creation. He hasn't given up on you. And so the resurrection means you don't ever have to give up either. You have new life and new power in Christ. The resurrection means all your suffering will be worth it. It will all be turned to glory in the end. It means God will wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be no more death nor sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. For behold, the Lord says, I am making all things new. Amen. Let's give thanks together. Father, we do thank you that you are making all things new in Christ Jesus, your son. We thank you that your son knew his way out of the grave, that he has conquered death and defeated sin and Satan. Father, we know the resurrection is the one thing that changes everything. It is the one clue to everything that shows us how the story of the world and how our own stories will go. It's the biggest clue to the future you've given to us, the only one we need. And indeed, it's a clue to our present lives as well. Father, may we live out the story that we're in, this resurrection story. Father, would you help us to do this by your grace and for your glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.